0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: You're listening to Justice, a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I speak to Nicole Jacobs, the first Domestic Abuse Commissioner for England and Wales. Nicole explains her statutory powers, as set out in the Domestic Abuse Bill, to raise public awareness and hold both agencies and government to account in tackling domestic abuse.
2: I'm Nicole Jacobs and I'm the Domestic Abuse Commissioner for England and Wales.
1: And this is the first time that this role has ever existed, right? That's right. It was
2: created in the Domestic Abuse Act which passed in late April of last year. And we, there were many provisions in the Act, but one of the provisions was a part of the legislation that created the role of the Domestic Abuse Commissioner. So um, it, the legislation also gave um, kind of a general direction for the office to be kind of to show public leadership or provide public leadership. Um, the government itself wanted this role because they could see how variable um, services are from place to place. So I'm sure we'll come back to that. Um, But that is really a specific goal of the post is to really end that postcode lottery.
1: Okay. well, and that should be applauded, right? You know, we spend a lot of time, don't we, sort of, well, I certainly do complaining about what's wrong and all the rest of it. But that is something that should be applauded.
2: Yeah, the creation and of the role. The, I think so. I mean, I, I would, I would hope, I would say that, of being the first <laughs> yeah. commissioner. But I, I do. Look, I think I understand it more now than I did even when I was first appointed and first thinking about trying um, to apply for the role. Because in my day to day, what I see is um, a real need for that concentrated effort. You know, when I look at how civil servants or government ministers work. Um, and even, you know, government at the local level. I think the idea of having a a commissioner whose office and all the people in the office, their job is and my job is to um, keep the light shining on, you know, progress, momentum. Um, I realize there's, there's a good bit of that within government, but there's a lot of kind of picking up and putting down or getting distracted by other things. And I think... Um, the commissioner's role, in the in the kind of the most basic sense, is to keep the light and you know the momentum um, going for yeah. the changes that are needed.
1: And it's nonpartisan, is that right? That's
2: right. So not party political, um, whether the government changed. In fact, um, you know, in order to change the role, you'd have to change the legislations. So, you know, I think each commissioner has maybe a, a different take on the, how they try to provide that leadership. But my my view is to try to be as cooperative as possible Mm. to really look and see um, particularly what ministers are aiming to achieve and help as much as you possibly can to get the most of those opportunities. But it's also then to step back and be uh, a critical friend and not to be afraid at all to say um, things are not good enough, we need to do better.
1: Okay, so is it sort of like the government sets the agenda... And you have to kind of deliver on that? Or is it you saying, no, this is the agenda and this is where you need to follow with policy and legislation? Or are you saying it's a bit of a bit of both? <laughs> I
2: think, oh, I'd hope it's a bit of both. Yeah. Um, so I think um, a really great example would be um, something that we're hoping to be published any day, which is the statutory guidance for the Domestic Abuse Act. Um, which has already passed and, and there's a lot of information in the guidance which local areas and services need. Uh, and so we want that to be published. When when we would have seen a first version of that, my office would have given a huge amount of feedback um, that I hope would have improved the guidance. So so it's not totally waiting for something to be set and then adhering to it. It's kind of a bit of a back and forth and Um, hopefully trying to contribute as much so that what is uh, set as a direction is really uh, as good as possible.
1: Okay. And just to go back a step for those who are less entrenched in sort of policy and legislation and politics, in a simple sense, what are the types of things that you cover in your office? You know, because often, I mean, I'm guilty of this too. When I think about domestic violence, I often think about a man hitting a woman, rightly or wrongly. But of course, there's elderly abuse, sibling on siblings, young people hurting older people, Mm -hmm. disabled people. LGBTq plus ethnic minority groups you know the list goes on so can you paint a bit of a picture for our listeners to smash any stereotypes that we might have about domestic violence?
2: Yes, I think that's it's great that you just went through the kind of range of of things of situations that would be included so domestic abuse um, and my role as commissioner is to represent anyone who's been subject to domestic abuse so that would be um, really being, mindful that although quite a few people who come to services and in our kind of surveys and a lot of research, um, we know that women are much more likely to be subject to domestic abuse. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't need to think about services for male victims um, and children, um, for perpetrators to change. You know, there's a lot of the scope of my office, which I feel really strongly about in a lot of the work we do day to day is to bring Um, bring to the fore real gaps in services for a lot of the groups you just mentioned?
1: Yeah, because um, I saw one stat about children and it says um, one in five might uh, are purported to be sort of living in a house Mm -hmm. where they might have either suffered or seen domestic violence. Any stats that we have are the tip of the iceberg, right? Exactly. And And I think when it comes to what men might have suffered, I think we just have no idea, do we? And it's slightly terrifying, I imagine, and, and probably a bit of a challenge for your office to how much do you peel back? Because, of course, your job and your office's job is to shine a light on it. But then it's slightly terrifying to think, isn't it? If we don't have enough services as it is today, yeah. what do we sort of do when, as we're sort of finding out more? Yeah. It's not to say yeah. we should shy away, but it's a challenge, isn't it?
2: I agree, and I think... Um some of what we're trying to do is to get to the detail of of that, you know, to be a lot more specific in terms of hearing, bringing those voices. You know, people often say, are you the voice of, um, you know, victims of domestic abuse? And I don't see it that way at all. I think my job is to create a much bigger space for a variety of people to have their voice. And so we're trying to bring to the fore, not only the prevalence rates, but also really making sure that we hear from a variety of victims, what did they need, where did they first approach um, for help, uh, what kind of services are actually out there, we're mapping services right now. And, And all of that is a lot about bringing a much clearer picture for government but also other funders to say, this is the reality of what we have. This is kind of where we are along the way. Um, and we're not we're not there yet, but these are the kinds of areas where we see really huge gaps. And yeah. children is frankly one of them. I mean, um, so many of our services are are oriented one to crisis intervention um, because if you have really scarce resources, as much as we all say we want to, we want to fund prevention or early intervention. If you have to make a choice, you have to choose crisis intervention. Someone who's had an incident last night or who's been subject to violence, you know, and is in the middle of a crisis in terms of what do they do today, what where do they go for help, and what we have to do is kind of settle down. I think the picture for what that crisis intervention needs to be in every area, and then we will have the the luxury of of being able to get to more preventative-type initiatives. And certainly um, one of the, the real gaps in terms of children is knowing what is it that you invest in that really has a great effect, what's a really supportive type of range of services for children, and some of that sits a little bit in children's social care in some areas and some sits in charities. And so it's a little, it's hard to kind of detangle it a little bit. and Yeah, see. cross departmental. Yeah, and and exactly. I imagine the
1: way the money works as well, it comes down in silos often, which is a problem across the board, isn't it? For Yes, it's absolutely <laughs>
2: right. So you have, um, you know, people often ask, like, which government department do you work with the most? And it's it's definitely across all departments because there'll be um, streams of funding that relate to certain things where you there's it's it's kind of a thread of mm. of work that needs to run through everything. For example, we're really active right now in um, the government's work in early family hubs, you know, or family hub models, which they're investing a lot of funding in, and of course within any family hub model. If you look at the prevalence rates and uh, what likely will need to be, um, you know, a core part of that is the what is the what is the offer for domestic abuse victims because that is what fa- family hubs will see, and so it's a little it's really making sure that we can bring the best evidence and also just the best information and planning yeah. so that we get out of the silos a little bit more than. Exactly, Uh, because I think
1: that often is, you know, the foundations of anything is important, isn't it, for an effective service. And actually, if the foundations through the commissioning routes are dysfunctional, Mm -hmm. anything that grows from it will end up being dysfunctional, I always think. But on mapping the gaps, um, that's really interesting. And I love uh, the idea of a, you know, I don't know how it's going to be presented, the information, but a sort of map and you can sort of look at it because I'm a philanthropist as well as a practitioner as well as a reformer. So it's kind of like, yeah, show me where the gaps are and then I can sort of lean in maybe and do a bit of um, investigating. So my question is really, how is that information going to be disseminated to either funders, the third sector organizations, people who maybe want to set up services? How are you going to present it and disseminate it?
2: Well, we are talking about interactive maps because we like that right. idea too. Yeah, I <laughs> I, think I, love I think it's much easier, isn't it, yeah. to just visualize yeah. and understand. And I think what a lot of people probably um, would be surprised to hear, but it would make total sense to hear, is that domestic abuse services, like I was just at Refuge, you know, there's an organization called Refuge who provides a lot of services. I was just at their 50th anniversary. So that gives us all a sense of, you know, we had refuges starting about 50 years ago. Um, When I moved here and started working a little bit over 20 years ago, um there was a there was a bit of work in the community and there was just starting to be much more interaction between domestic abuse kind of community based services and services like the police and others. I mean, there's been a huge amount of change over a relatively short time, and all of those services have never sat in core budgets. Um, They've always been kind of grown from a bit of cobbling together of funding at the local level, trusts and foundations, really incredible champions and inspirational people. So what we have now is... Uh, a service provision which makes a lot of sense for survivors in a lot of ways because it was built in and around them and often by them, you know, people who'd been through domestic abuse who then set up a refuge or set up a domestic abuse service. Um, But what we've never had is this kind of sustainable picture. So when I talk to um, police and crime commissioners or leaders at the local level, um, they'll know what's happening in their community and maybe what they've been funding recently. But if if you were to say, "How does that look per head of population to another area that you often compare yourselves to in terms of services and what's offered to children, adults?" They would say, "I don't know." Uh, and it's the same at the you know national level in government.
1: How do we make good policy and pass good legislation if we don't know?
2: Yes, it's exactly, terrifying. Exactly, <laughs> and and having run charities uh, myself and and worked in many many services over the years before coming to this role, I know the amount of information I was sending to funders and to government for for government funded projects and programs. And I so when I <coughs> became commissioner, I. Um, I kind of naively thought all that information was just sitting somewhere just to, to kind of use. Yeah, exactly. And, you could just pick it up and, <laughs> and it's
1: all very easy. I was
2: quite surprised when I realized that, of course, there's there's information. But, again, the nature of government is, you know, there might have been information gathered for one particular innovation program within a department. And then once that's been kind of, um, once there's a line drawn under that, the kind of information might just sit there it's it's that whole concept of like really driving through to let, fully understand Um, And that's not often the nature of how government works. There's kind of on to the next thing, on to the next priority. Yeah, I
1: mean, that's national government, isn't it? But then there's sort of local government. And and I actually did a podcast recently with a police and crime commissioner from Hampshire. And actually, the word commissioner can get a bit confusing, can't it? Because you could have a police and crime commissioner attached to every constabulary. So what is that, 43 around the country? But then you're a commissioner too, but there's one of you at a national level and then also it gets even more confusing when you talk about the Met Commissioner because she's in charge of the Metropolitan Police which is slightly separate yes, as well. Yes, it's so um, true. So listeners, if you're confused then that is completely understandable. <laughs> it's so
2: true and I don't actually commission the services. You know, right. I'm not given like um, <laughs> sometimes I kind of wish I could. But, um, but and police and
1: crime commissioners do commission the services, do. right? But the Domestic Abuse Commissioner, you, you do not commission services. I
2: don't. But okay. what I'm doing is um, in some ways, that would there's a there's kind of a relief to that because to some degree, my job is to bring together the right information um, and to to really set out how I think that services could be more sustainably funded. So I'll give you an example: the Domestic Abuse Act created a statutory duty for accommodation-based services. So for the first time ever. Uh, because a duty was created within the legislation, uh, what we tend to think of as refuges or things that are of that nature, accommodation-based services for domestic abuse, were were given um, much more of a sustainable footing than they'd ever had before. So before it's always been more of a local decision, how much money might we invest at the local level for something um, called refuge for domestic abuse. Um, areas were quite variable. And because the the legislation created a duty, one hundred and twenty five million pounds was set aside for from the treasury because they had imposed a duty or a burden on local areas. and they sent that money to local areas, and they the legislation required them to do a mapping and a needs assessment. So that, I mean, there there are, of course, implementation issues. There's all sorts of things. but essentially, that is a huge step forward. but but, more than 70% of people who are subject to domestic abuse go to a community-based service, which wasn't included in that duty. So I think seeing seeing how that's worked for accommodation services, I would really like to see that duty extended to community-based services so we can kind of settle down that funding picture. And I would hope that some of the mapping that I'm doing and some of the influence that that our office could have would help Shape that in a really positive way. Police and crime commissioners are a great example, and I often say I meet with them a lot. And I often say they kind of hold some of the cards in terms of the funding, but they will they will have many other funders in, in their areas at the, okay. the local authority level who also contribute. Um, And there will be trusts and foundations. So it's very hard for any one funder in this area to to create that kind of sustainable planned approach. Um, And I think if they could have a duty that was set by government where they could know how much they would depend on every year collectively.
1: Yeah, like an economic sort of model. That could yeah. be replicated from county to county, would yeah, you say?
2: based on, you know, the, the, the kind of allocations that government often does for areas like that factor in population but also demographics of all kinds. And I think that would be a fair approach to really creating and settling down um, the funding landscape and the kind of the ways these services are funded because what's so interesting is not only survivors will say you know these uh, this service changed my life you know because they they they're independent in nature so if you are if you're subject to domestic abuse and you're so worried what will happen if the police find out or the school finds out or a social worker gets involved there's all these fears of the system and and having a domestic abuse charity specialist charity Supporting you means you get some independent advice, someone who works and, and supports people all the time, that's their main job, um, and really informed, trauma-informed, we tend to bat that that term around a bit, but it, they understand the nature of that situation so well and they can kind of stand alongside and advocate and make sure people get what they need but also that there are not more system Induced risks, which is sounds a bit jargony, but it's true. Yeah, there's being all
1: re-traumatized th- at mm-hmm. the hands of the services and the system that's meant to help you. Which sadly we see, yeah, quite a bit of. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your work in the family courts in relation to domestic abuse related cases and the sort of transparency and accountability. Because I know that that's a contentious, oh my gosh. contentious it's a huge, area. It's a Deep huge breath. issue. Yeah, it's it's, it's the most
2: frequent reason why individual survivors of abuse get in touch with my office i mean i should say that we're um we're prohibited from kind of advocating for individuals oddly i mean i i guess it's not odd because i think if i was able to that's all we would do um and there's services out there so we try to really carefully signpost but it but very often people get in touch um, about family court, or really just wanting to tell me the, the horrendous experience they they will have had in the family court. So, um, there's for those of you who really want to get into the detail of it, there's a really interesting report called the, the Harm Panel Report that was was published by the Ministry of Justice. The
1: Harm Panel report. Yeah,
2: and it set out. It was a two-year kind of process and piece of work of gathering evidence. Um, and it set out recommendations about how the how domestic abuse needs to be better understood and more consistently um, the practice directions. Anything related to practice in relation to domestic abuse needed to be more consistently applied. And essentially, it's a very well thought of report. And partly because it really doesn't uh, hide the fact that the the family courts are really failing victims of domestic abuse. Um, in a, quite a serious way, not understanding coercion and control and not understanding the dynamics of abuse, a lot of evidence about a, kind of a lack of consistency and how they, the processes are set up to be used. Children um, not being seen as victims, being, right? And their voices not being heard. Um, and it it really, you know, if we take a step back from things like the reports, it makes a lot of sense because there's so many, I think every, people might think, if you were a victim of domestic abuse, you would, um, in that situation, have had lots of police involvement or lots of other um, quote-unquote evidence. Um, And that's not always the case. We have, you know, know, I I tend to always hesitate from using statistics, but if if we know 2.3 million people last year have, have been subject to domestic abuse, we know that from ONS. Only a fraction of those people will have ever had any contact with the police, um, and the people that do need to have an excellent response, and that's yeah. a whole nother conversation. And that well.
1: figure is the people who've reported, right? Exactly. The Office of National Statistics.
2: Yeah. Who, when asked, you know, have you ever had? Have you ever have these things ever happened to you? Yeah. Um, it's very focused on physical abuse, but the so the, the numbers, in fact, are probably a bit higher. But that's where you hear, we often hear one in four women, um, those types of statistics come from that, that survey. Uh, and so by the time someone gets to family court, they may never have disclosed domestic abuse to anyone. They, they might not have used the term, even though they would have been, you know, very obviously been subject to yeah. domestic abuse. Yeah, and
1: often it's worth pointing out, isn't it, that often um, people who are going through it don't realize that they are being mm-hmm. subject to domestic abuse, especially if they're not being hit and it's coercive control. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've lived with that all your life, mm-hmm. it's normal. Mm-hmm.
2: And And also we know things like our risk, in, you know, risk increases at the point of separation. There's a lot of risk that is associated with... Um, the kind of arrangements over who's seeing children and when. There's so many things that create a huge need for the family court to have a very clear understanding. Um, and because it's uh, the lack of transparency, you know, there's not a lot of people who um, very often people can't be supported in court because of cuts in legal aid. A lot of people are representing themselves in court, which makes things more complicated as well. Um, so a range of factors have come together to create quite a difficult situation. And the good news is, in a lot of ways, is it's all set out. It's been accepted by government. the The recommendations within the report have been accepted. There's now um, a, a panel that's been set up to look at that presumption of parental involvement. There is a couple of court areas which are piloting a more inquisitorial court model that is less adversarial, which is really positive. So things are moving along a little bit. um, And my office has been asked by that report and through the recommendations and by government to set up a reporting mechanism about how domestic abuse is dealt with within the family courts. Which That's I can great. tell you sounds really simple, but it is no. really complicated.
1: <laughs> I imagine. Um, I imagine. Yeah,
2: because a lot of that information doesn't sit in a court file. Um it we've really spent a lot of time talking to the president of the family, division, CAFCAS, solicitors, victims themselves, children. We we've spent kind of the summer in round tables. Um trying to bring together kind of a consensus of what information we'd need to get to. And now we're at a point where we're kind of designing a pilot of exactly how we would get to it and what information we would need from various entities, the court system, um, CAFCAS, other other players, and how we would um, talk to individuals without really wanting to disrupt the stress that is already, you know, their experience of the family court. So it's really trying to bring together a really realistic way that we can have an oversight and it'll, it won't be a one-off, we'll continue doing it every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, on one way, as a commissioner, I'm really excited about that. I feel like it'll really help us but I do find it frustrating, kind of that the people who contact me, it won't, it doesn't help them, to be honest. Like it, there's, you know, what's happening right now in family courts today, um, is not, not impacted not just enough. yet. Yeah. And so I always feel that having worked in frontline services for so so many years, that are, it's really immediate, and um, you can see what you're doing every day. Whereas things like this, I do have a lot of hope for the future. But it doesn't mean the family courts are improved as of today.
1: Yeah. And what about training? Because, you know, this is a really complicated specialist area. And I think often when it comes to people's problems generally in society, we don't give it that sort of kudos of it being, you know, experts need to be involved and they need to be specially trained in gender specific services mm-hmm. you know understanding trauma how that differs from men to women how that differs from young people to older people um people from ethnic minority backgrounds you know that's all different yet you know i see again and again people just not having the right training mm-hmm. so then how can we expect a system to work if people i mean imagine sort of trying to sort of send me into an investment bank i mean the whole thing would collapse you know i have no <laughs> idea what i'm doing so i wouldn't go anywhere near that line of work But that's kind of what you see a lot of, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and and magistrates and judges, of course, are highly educated in in certain areas. But then often you see the gaps of Mm -hmm. the specialist training and understanding these Mm -hmm. sort of particular.
2: And along the way, society has changed a lot in terms of how we we view these things as well. So um, the concepts of coercion and control, in other words, you know, I think a lot of people still think, well, domestic abuse is physical abuse, you know and of course that is often part and parcel of it but it's also just understanding the context of you know what it means if you think at the heart of domestic abuse it means to really want to control another um, often, most often a current former partner. And that means you, there's a lot of tactics, you know, Mm. there's many, many other kinds of tactics. Money,
1: clothes, movements, right? Restricting people's access to friends and, and all sorts of, I mean, even sort of stories about people controlling the heating. Um, and particularly now we live in a more techie world. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've heard lots of stories, as I'm sure you have, of people being able to control heating systems and all sorts of things through their phones mm-hmm. from afar mm-hmm. to make people sort of feel like they're going mad. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. it's There's so many. And, and so I think
2: understanding, you know, understanding the whole range of what does that mean and look like, um, and then if you layer that with um, people who may you might be interacting with who might not use the terms domestic abuse. They might say, I don't like what's happening, but, but may not actually say, and it's very often the case, they won't necessarily say, I am a victim of domestic abuse. They often will look in later and, and say, yes, I can see that really clearly now. Um, and then you layer on the the ideas of how our our services are a little bit different from place to place. And um, it it creates a picture where um, I think even people with the best of intentions or who really feel that they know, it's a fair statement that everyone could improve. There's no doubt. And it needs to be kind of a continual improvement. And so, and that ranges from um, judges, as you say, all the way through to every system player um every everyone who interacts housing officers medical yeah. people so domestic abuse is not a criminal justice response exclusively no. it's it's got to be and in fact we can see in places where they have really excellent practice with community-based services or housing or health you can see measurably how those those in those areas you can get to people and offer support yeah. much much earlier
1: and what about um the responsibility on schools because i often think that schools have probably a lot put on them uh, maybe one might argue quite rightly If a sort of young teacher suddenly realizes that maybe a child in pre-prep, for example, is coming in and they're a bit worried about what they're seeing. And, you know, they might just think, oh, my God, who on earth do I go and talk to? You know, there might not be anyone trained properly in the school to be able to. Mm -hmm. And then you sort of blow something up into, you know, getting police and absolutely terrifying.
2: Yeah. You know, it might
1: just be easier to sort of slightly turn a blind eye and make sure that that child's okay, whilst... Um, with you. in the in the school days. so what would you say to that because i can see how that's a really problematic area
2: it is and um there's a lot of scope again for some promising kind of work that's, that that is happening I like promising, promising. <laughs> um i tend to try to be as optimistic as i can Good. the 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 curriculum for relationships and sex education has the the requirements have changed Um, Unfortunately, it came into effect kind of in the middle of COVID and when there's so much disruption in schools, but there's now really a set expectation in primary and secondary school to cover, well, I would say cover domestic abuse. But what I mean by that is, you know, age appropriate, you know, healthy relationships, really understanding that within within those areas of the curriculum there now will be a much more proactive discussion about these things which people have been campaigning for for years it's great to have that and i think the next step is to really understand how schools are implementing that How is where is the excellent practice? Um, I am chairing um, a meeting that's sponsored by the Department of Education on this subject, which I was delighted because I I can really see a need to, not only at at local levels, but more nationally as well, just really bringing together the good practice because some schools will be doing really, really well with this and probably in great partnerships. And and. Going back to your situation that you've brought up about spotting a child, that's the you know teachers will say when we bring these subjects up. I do really worry, you know, like this this term, you know, my opening account of worms because I won't know what to do. Um, There are safeguarding leads in schools, but they have such a broad range of things to look at. Yeah,
1: I was just so you read my mind actually because I was thinking surely this is a safeguarding. Problem. We have no British safeguarding standard in this country currently. Um, and provision is very patchy, isn't it? Mm-hmm, and often mm-hmm. you'll go into schools and go, Right, who's the safeguarding lead? And everyone looks at each other and it's like, Huh, what? <laughs> and then of course, every school is allowed to mark their own homework mm-hmm. or every church or whatever mm-hmm. institution that has children in it. So that's a real problem, is it not?
2: That's right. And and I think schools really do the best they possibly can in those circumstances. But I've I've it's not unusual, this is before my time as commissioner, you know, talking to people at the local level who might say, I know I'm the safeguarding lead, but you know, I don't have a level of confidence about this issue in a similar way that other people who work in safeguarding might, say within children's social care or other areas. So I think there's just a real need to to concentrate on what does good look like how do you how who which schools are implementing well there's some great examples of schools for you know it's a it's a leadership issue or someone who's a particular champion maybe they've had experience of, of their own who really are great leaders and they'll start to show and teach schools other schools in their area how to what they're doing and how they can do it. And so yeah. we need to put more investment in that type of thing and give more, kind of amplify that work. And I think, um, unfortunately, we're still at a stage, I think, where people are, are going the extra mile, are seeming to do a bit more than maybe what's expected. And what we need to have is, uh, you know, a shift to this is obviously core business. This will be affecting so many children in schools. You know, there are are things called domestic homicide reviews um, when sadly there's been a death as a result of domestic abuse or murder. And I don't do them, I don't chair them now because I'm the commissioner, but before um, coming to this role I I used to chair some. And the very last one I did was um, a wonderful family in Gloucester um, where Sadly, a a mom and her daughter were killed um, by her husband, but he he was the stepfather of the child. And the child had a lot of difficulty at school, and when you have the luxury of looking back, you could see that the minute he moved into the house, suddenly there was problems at school and behavioral problems. And the school just didn't think about what in the child's life had changed, like who was this person who just moved into their house? What, why would, you know, what was the connection between behavior and and home life? And um, it seems really simple now when you look back, but it was quite tragic to kind of look at that circumstance and think, had we had better understanding in schools if we had more confidence. Yeah, which comes Um, back
1: to the point, doesn't it, of um, it's all very well having a safeguard lead and someone being nominated and maybe trained, but it's a collective responsibility, isn't it? So that's that poor safeguarding lead isn't just the one person sort of buzzing around the school, sort of feeling incredibly responsible for... For all of these issues, if no one else really understands it,
2: and of course perpetrators, perpetrators of abuse who are the sole, they're solely responsible for these tragedies, Um, and we always want to try to get the systems desperately to 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 kind of somehow, um, you know, be be able to be perfectly you know, responsive. But we also have to keep in mind that, that perpetrators of abuse are often very manipulative.
1: Yeah, they often can... highly educated, articulate, which comes back yeah. to another thing, doesn't it, about the courts, when it's the theatre of power and control. And often these people are very, very good, aren't they, instead mm-hmm. sort of putting mm-hmm. their case across and making the other person look slightly mad.
2: There's a lot to say about, about that and how others will perceive um, and think, Oh, he he or she seems so charming, so so together. Couldn't possibly imagine. Um, and I think it's it's a wide, a huge awake uh, kind of awakening when you listen to people talk about the detail of kind of how brutal and how truly um, cruel people can be behind closed doors when they think no one else is watching. And um, and that is just the reality. And then it, when you take that into, as you say, a more public space, it's, um, you know, trauma-informed is really important because then you realize the fear the person has of the other. You know, you're, you're in family court where suddenly, in criminal court where you might be separated and have measures put in place, you know, the family court you could be walking right in, waiting alongside standing right next to you know feeling very unprotected and so there's all of those things that factor in yeah um, that make that, that kind of make you feel that sometimes the system creates so many barriers for yeah, people
1: because you sort of feel and that's what I always try and get across uh, in these podcasts that it's not Yes, it's about highlighting and educating people on the problems, but it's also about saying these problems are fixable and solvable a lot of the time. Of course, I don't underestimate any of the challenges, but just, you know, that that one example that you gave of, People coming in together or, you know, surely people could be separated a bit more or now that we know we can do video. You know, there are solutions out there, so we shouldn't be too downbeat about it. Um, but on the perpetrator side of things as well, one of the areas that I get very concerned about is when, say, for example, that in the traditional sense, woman with children, she's been beaten up. Uh, her male partner has been charged and sent to prison. And when he comes out of prison, there might be a stalking protection order on him or something that says you cannot approach your ex-girlfriend or ex-wife again and you need to be away from the children. But then when that person comes out of prison, she's not told that he's coming out of prison. So she might not be aware until suddenly he appears either at her door or her window or approaches her when she's out and about, which obviously would be a breach then of, of the license that he would be be under should there and and could there be a mechanism whereby someone is told and so they can prepare that their perpetrators coming out of prison because mm-hmm. that feels like a it's a problem for the woman it's a problem for the children but then if that woman is in supported housing then it's a real safety problem for the staff mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. trying to look after them as well so what would you say about that situation because i see it all the time
2: yeah i agree and i i um, I think you know there's so many situations i mean we could we could talk all day about <laughs> situations where systems have been kind of set up, not necessarily with with the idea of domestic abuse in mind um and then it feels like a lot of what our work is collectively and certainly some of my day to day is to look at whatever's been set up and say let's we have to now improve that or be much more mindful about domestic abuse. I feel like it's almost as if like our understanding has changed over time and now we have to have the systems change that's needed does require us to look at every single way, whether it's housing or health or the criminal justice response and, I do think there's been some improvements, you know, for certain types of sentences. There are victim liaison officers. I've done a lot of work with probation recently, and I have a very active kind of engagement with my office, with the probation service. And a lot of, there's a, there's a long way to go, but I had a session recently with victim liaison officers who are the exact people who are are, are there to do exactly what you've just described, you know, um, contact the victim pre-release, really make sure they understand the situation, think about how that connects to decisions being made about license requirements. Um, and they are really inspiring on one hand to talk to because they have really high caseloads. They have great expertise and understanding. Um, but some but we were talking about some of the challenges that they have. And some of it is they may not they may not have been given the correct information about who the yeah. victim is. Um, they may not be able to get hold
1: of the victims not, if their the, mobile
2: phone has changed, or they might not have a mobile phone. Exactly, the the victim it may be, uh, you know. In, uh, I was just re- reading a piece of research yesterday that that reminded me that forty three percent of women who are fleeing domestic abuse they they go to another area, and so they there may be victims who at once would have been contactable but are not now, um, and then that the level of understanding at some point, hopefully someone's talked to the victim about this type of role, a victim liaison officer within probation, but then they may not, um, you know, have have kept that number or thought about. So it's a lot about just getting those systems to work. What are all the safeguards that you could put in place? Um, how can you improve that? And I think one of the things, it's, the, it's, It is coming. It does come down to the idea of kind of what structures are in place at the local level so that if the victim is concerned, which of course they will be, they could in very good time be making those links and linking back in and trying to find their way back to the right information. Yeah, because of course
1: the man, um, if in this case it was a man, he also might be moved from prison to prison to prison and he might get parole earlier or he might then not get parole. So I... Again, don't underestimate how difficult the job is to try and keep a track of where the victim or survivor's gone and actually where the perpetrator's gone in the prison system. Because, of course, you know, have you ever tried to get hold of anyone in a prison? It's really hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, I do understand the challenge yeah. there, but it's um, a huge security risk. It is. And and it is about,
2: again, the systems realizing the risks imposed or the risks to the public and and investing in whatever it takes to do that. I mean, the idea that we understand that that happens and that there, you know, wouldn't there be a specialist team or is there a way to flag when you're not able to get in touch with a victim and prioritizing certain victims that need much more attention and care and ways that you try to reach out. I mean, I think that is a great example of what um, what we often I think we've often accepted over time, you know, these ways the system doesn't work. And it takes that real attention to detail, a much more kind of forensic approach to say domestic abuse is so serious that we would be willing to put in this e- this effort. Um, you know, the, there's an, the inspectorate of the police in kind of one of the big reports in the year that has been covered a lot is... Um, Zoe Billingham's report, who at the time was the inspector, represented the inspectorate of the police, um, policing of violence against women and girls, um, in the wake of the Sarah Everard murders and and so many others, uh, Biba Henry and so many other victims this year, who sadly have really brought these these issues to our attention. Nicole Smallman. The, the inspectorate said we need to expect that the criminal justice system prioritizes these cases, you know, the, the cases in such a way that they prioritize other cases that they see as quote unquote serious violence. So I think it takes a shift in our mindset about mm-hmm. um, what are we investing? What is the resource? What is, you know, we have to, it's an admission of the impact of, of these crimes and w- you know, it's not that long ago where, you know, others, police, I think, have told me, you know, when the idea of things being just a domestic, you know, and I think yeah, we, we're kind of, kind of changing ever so slightly, obviously, away from that, but there's the legacy of that mindset is embedded in all of our systems and it's really about recreating kind of what is the priority and and making sure that... um You know, attention is paid to that, you know, the pre-release, you know, what kind of what is the expectation we should have?
1: But again, surely this comes back to, and I've been thinking a lot recently, as um, you might have as well, sort of the Met, because it's been in the, uh, the culture of the Met has been in the news so much. And you sort of think, gosh, how can we sort of change it for the better? And surely it comes down to recruitment and training. I know that's not the quick fix crisis management, which has to be done. But both things need to be done at the same time and need to run in parallel, don't they? Mm -hmm. Because, of course, you know, if we look at the training for the police, if we look at the training for prison officers, which is virtually nothing, um, and then all these other different departments that might be involved, if we don't change that and make that training fit for purpose, we're never going to therefore Mm -hmm. drive cultural change, Mm are we? Exactly. And when I hear those horrific examples. I,
2: I feel really sorry for the officers that I know and have known over who the are years great. who are great. And they must just, I mean, the, the sheer frustration of having people, um, the, you know, because unfortunately I'm afraid, you know, the public at large is at a point where there's a huge lack of trust now. Yeah. Um, and I, I would say people will say, well, that's been earned and, uh, that there's so many people within policing who are trying to make that change and who to, do try their best, and um, and it, I probably would say this because this is the kind of role I've been in over the years. But I, I I often make the point that I think the police, they can't do this alone, and that they have to in their their partnerships with domestic abuse advocates. That's what gives. I think will build much more confidence because as a, as a domestic abuse advocate, if you're supporting someone who's interacting with the police and things are not going well, you are then kind of a third party who can raise that and make sure that that's, that's fixed for the person, but also that it, there's an awareness of it. And so I think the more we can um, include those partnerships, the more you shed light on what's not going going well and there's just a reality check. Um, and also, you know, I think we all do well when we know that we're working alongside others and um, and that there's, there are other people involved that, say, a victim can talk to and will disclose things to, and that only makes it better yeah. um, for any system.
1: I think accountability is such a big topic, though, as well, isn't it? And certainly in the prison system you see a lot, and, and only from what I've read about the police, um, in the newspapers, when you hear about people either not losing their jobs for things, quite frankly, mm-hmm. they should, mm-hmm. or actually being promoted or move sideways into other jobs, I understand that it's difficult to sometimes maybe um, sack people or get rid of people. I don't understand the ins and outs of of all of that. and And I'm not saying that just by sacking people left, right and centre, that's going to fix things. But I think, you know, if that makes me unbelievably angry reading the papers mm-hmm. or knowing that a governor who's presided over a woeful prison gets promoted to sort of counterterrorism or something, you just think, I'm sorry, <laughs> what on earth is this? Yeah. yeah. You know, and that does fuel public anger quite rightly.
2: Mm-hmm. I agree, and that if I were working within that service, I would want to see some accountability yeah. from my colleagues because yeah. that only holds it would only hold you back, really. Yeah, and saying this
1: will not be tolerated, suffering. but actually, on the one hand, it's people say it's not tolerated, but then on the other hand, you see people
2: mm-hmm. remaining
1: in their jobs, so therefore, it is tolerated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's there is a sort of a bit of a messaging problem, yeah. there, isn't there? It is, and
2: and from you know a lot of times conversations I might get into will be. Um, people who will say um, we can't focus solely on a criminal justice response Uh, it's not just a criminal justice response Mm -hmm. Nicole there's all these other things and of course I believe that but I suppose I would also say there are many many victims who desperately need the this the protection of the police at times and when that's the case they need to have really excellent you know, response. And so it's not, of course, it's not something that I would wish for absolutely everyone for, for involvement with the police, but, but absolutely. I mean, let's put it this way. It's the, it's the largest uh, reason why anyone calls the police. I think that also surprises people. You know, domestic abuse is the top category of people calling the police. Um, And so given that fact, we have to really understand again are we putting the resource in probably not do we have all of the kind of emphasis or do we still kind of suffer from the fact that people think of this as a a relatively minor crime Um, and you know I think we're getting away from that now and we're moving on from that but we have the legacy of that that we have to overcome and be kind of confront essentially
1: yeah. yeah. How how long is your term? How long does your role last for?
2: Yeah. So I was appointed. It's a three year term, and I was appointed as a designate. And it, it was I was appointed ca- about three months prior to COVID. I think everyone is will mark time in your life with the pre COVID, during COVID, um, kind of timescales. So I had no idea. Obviously, that was ahead of us, and of course, we saw a huge spike in domestic abuse during lockdown, um, and. It was also before the proroguing of Parliament and the the um, change in government. So, so I stay. I thought I might be a designate commissioner for about three months, and it turned out to be more like a year and three months. Um, for all of those reasons, so I just got the powers of the office in November. So only a few months in, and that's an ability to seek information from public bodies and a duty for those bodies to respond to information, which is great. Uh, And an ability to make recommendations to public bodies that have to be responded to within 56 days. So all commissioners, if you think of the children's commissioner, the victim's commissioner, we all are slightly different in the powers we've been given. Um, And so i'm just starting to use those powers as in in the way that they were intended so mm-hmm. i would love to do another term um and that will hopefully be a decision made fairly soon yeah so.
1: and that's great so so by law um if i'm correct if you ask for the information about something public bodies have to provide it. provide it what if they don't have it i think they <laughs> does that mean they break the law by not giving it to you or do you help them then to Start yeah. gathering because, you know, we talked about the problem of data gathering and often it's sort of not there really.
2: Yeah, it's very true. I think if they wouldn't have it, it certainly would help raise how would you get to it Um, and wouldn't you need to have it. Um, I think there's there would be plenty of ways that we could eventually get
1: there. Yeah, because what um, I guess you don't want to do then is sort of penalize someone for not having it and then them scrabbling together bad data mm-hmm, because they're mm-hmm. worried that you know, they're going to get into trouble. Yeah. And there's a lot about, I mean, people think, well, what, what good does that
2: do? Like the, the ability to do that. But I guess the whole theme of a lot of our conversation today has been, you know, systems that kind of lagging behind and this change in our understanding. So I think of the use of, of, I often use an example of like mental health trusts, for example, there's so much need to develop, services for domestic abuse or trauma informed services and and a lot of that interconnectedness as is, is you see in prisons between trauma substance misuse mental health domestic abuse that all um, comes together and yet we don't have a very good sense of you know provision of service within mental health trusts, for example yeah and like so that, that venn
1: diagram where everything overlaps yet we still kind of talk about everything mm-hmm. as though it's all mm-hmm. separate don't we
2: and, um, and you often hear people who are subject to domestic abuse saying, I don't meet the quote-unquote threshold for these services. Or, you know, there's, there's a lot, again, about kind of asking the right questions of public bodies to really help kind of progress to a much better kind of change in the picture of what might be offered. And so that's the way I intend and the way we're starting to use those powers of the office to really just drive at... Um, bringing to light kind of where where are we really in relation to these issues in many, many spheres um, yeah. so that, uh, again, we, we don't have to think about only a criminal justice response, you know, that we can think about how you could offer support and advice much earlier in different settings.
1: Yeah, Well, we've barely scratched the surface, but (laughs) we've covered a lot. And, you know, and I first of all want to say thank you for your time. But also it's it's really encouraging, I think, that um, your post was created. It's really exciting, even if in the first stage, it's a stock take of where are we? What is the data? um, Because surely if we're going to go forward in any meaningful way. Um, that information is super, super important.
2: Oh, thank you. And I'm a huge admirer of yours and One Small Thing and all of the work you're doing. So, and I'm sure there's, there's lots that we'll get up to together. So thank you for having me today.
1: Not at all. Thank
2: you.
0: Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode.